Is Free Market Environmentalism an Oxymoron? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Glenn Fox. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Glenn Fox. Glenn is an agricultural and natural resource economist and professor at the University of Guelph right here in Ontario, Canada. He has been a member of the Department of Agricultural Economics and Business at the University of Guelph since 1985. Previously, he taught in the Economics Department at the University of Western Ontario. He's also a regular speaker at Institute for Liberal Studies campus events and is frequently a faculty member at the ILS's summer seminar Freedom Week. His research interests include property rights and natural resource stewardship, regulatory takings, economic theories of the firm, technological change, trade and environment, and transaction costs, just to name a few. Glenn, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you. Good to be here. So in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the conversation takes us. So let's kick it right off. Is free market environmentalism an oxymoron? I guess the short answer is that I don't think it is, uh, but that is the product of a long journey that I've taken starting when I was involved in an environmental club when I was in high school back in the 70s. And I would say if I could remember what I thought back in those days was that uh, free markets, businesses, consumption, population uh, all contribute to uh, environmental problems. They all cause environmental problems. Uh, and that, uh, that the idea that free markets should be or could be the friends of uh, environmental protection would have been an alien thought to me at that time. Uh, but over the past uh, many years, uh, starting with some experiences that I had as a young assistant professor here at Guelph in the early in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, I've come to a different uh, point of view that in fact, the uh, free market environmentalism is not an oxymoron. One of the things I wanted to do, and I'm, I'm glad you actually took it right there because it's perfectly natural for the question I want to ask out the gate after our main one, which is let's get into exactly what you mean by, on the one hand, free markets, and on the other hand, environmentalism. And then, of course, you can mix in how private property relates to free markets as well. Because I think when people talk about you know free markets, some people unfamiliar with the perspective you come from uh, don't see how free markets can reconcile themselves with limits and restraints on people. They think it just means, oh, great, free markets. Let's dump a bunch of sludge and toxic waste into a river. So free markets and environmentalism, let's define our terms. Good. That's an excellent question. I I think that to many people, free markets uh, means anything goes, that just do whatever you want with with no consequences, with no constraints, uh, with no thought for anybody else, including your own future. Uh, but properly understood, free markets operate in a, a legal and institutional environment. Uh, and in particular, they operate in a property rights uh, environment. And so uh, free markets to be genuinely free markets means that my actions are limited by the boundaries of my property. Uh, and I can't take an action with my property that uh, creates uh, a trespass or a nuisance or a physical interference with uh, your property or my neighbor's uh, property. And so free markets, I like to, to describe them as, as uh, the realm of voluntary transactions among consenting adult property owners. Uh, free markets is a little more concise phrase uh, to use that, but, but the idea of consent, the idea of property, uh, the idea of voluntary exchange uh, are important concepts, um, and there's a lot of reciprocity uh, understanding involved in what a, what a free market is. Uh, now, environmentalism, uh, I, I like to differentiate between uh, environmentalism as a prescribed set of outcomes uh, or a process uh, to resolve problems. And free market environmentalism, I think, fits in the second category. It's a process to resolve environmental problems in particular. Uh, And at their core, I think the the, the thing that all environmental problems have in common uh, is that they boil down to disagreements among people. Uh, You think that a particular body of water would be great to use for purpose X, and I think that a particular body of water might be better used for purpose Y. Uh, uh, or the atmosphere, or a piece of land, or what have you. So you and I have a disagreement 
uh, about how a natural resource uh, ought to be used. Uh, so how do we resolve that? Well, one way to resolve that is through property rights and voluntary exchange. So let, let's continue with that example to get a bit more into how free markets, in fact, put limits on people or there are constraints. And it's not just that, as you said, you can't just do whatever you want. right? Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I end up winning out in whatever bidding war there is for this fake lake I'm envisioning in my head. And I decide that I'm paying the most money for this lake or at least more money than you will to the seller mm-hmm. because I want to dump toxic sludge in there. A lot of people in their minds think, well... That's the market. If I dump a bunch of toxic sludge in there and then it goes downstream and and screws up the the shoreline of other people's cottages and things like that. Obviously, mm-hmm. you're going to tell us that that's not the way it works, but that's the illustration I'm looking for. Let, let's get into how there actually are, in fact, constraints with with the framework you're building here. Yeah, and I, I think the perception that you've uh, articulated is probably a fairly common one, uh, mm-hmm. maybe one that I would have thought of uh, in my uh, younger younger days. Uh, but the constraint that exists, so suppose uh, you do acquire this lake and you become the owner of this lake and you decide to put a substance in the lake which is uh, which uh, leaks downstream. Uh, well, you don't own the downstream. You don't own the, the land which um, uh, borders this, the river or the creek that runs out of the lake. Uh, other property owners own that. And if you put something in the lake uh, that you own, and it spills over, it it seeps out, it runs downstream, then you are violating the property rights of what are called the riparian landowners. And so uh, under uh, Anglo-American uh, customary common law, if you own land which is adjacent to water, then you're called a riparian owner. And your rights to ownership of land extend to the water in the sense that you can, um, uh, nobody can interfere with the quality or the quantity of the water that flows past your property. So if you've contaminated your lake and it's completely self-contained and it doesn't drain anywhere and it doesn't go anywhere, uh, then I think that's kind of a stupid thing for you to do, frankly, but it's your business to do that. Just as uh, if you don't keep your apartment clean, um, then that's going to impair your quality of life. I think uh, we'd be better for you if you cleaned your apartment, Alex. But uh, <laughs> uh, but it's none of my business uh, ultimately. If but but if you're not cleaning your apartment and something oozes downstairs through the ceiling into my apartment, well, then all of a sudden you've made it my business, and that's what happens with uh, with riparian uh, landowners uh, and under Anglo-American customary common law. Uh, I can have an action as a riparian landowner downstream saying, hold on, Alex, Uh, you have reduced the quality, you've reduced the quantity uh, of water, which I'm entitled to have flow by my property, uh, and I can bring some action against you uh, in order to to, um, make you take into account uh, my property interest in, uh, in that flow of water. Another one of the sort of objections or, you know, flipping scenarios I hear people throw out there when they talk about or when they hear about, you know, free market environmentalism or just letting the market take care of these sorts of things. And let, and in fact, it may be better for the environment is, again, someone might say, well, if we let people do whatever they want with their property, someone's going to put a smokestack in the middle of my neighborhood, for instance. Mm-hmm. But in the free market ideal where property rights are respected, you can't just, for instance, have smoke and fumes and things like that shooting out of a smokestack and landing on your neighbor's property, I don't think, right? That's right. And I think uh, one of the things that people have uh, maybe the most difficulty uh, uh, conceptual level understanding is is uh, how you can be protected against contaminants that arrive on your property through the air. Uh, and there are, there are two doctrines that, uh, that are two traditional doctrines about how you in fact can have property rights in air. Most people don't think about that. They don't think, how can you have property rights in air? Because mm-hmm. the wind blows and the air moves and so forth. Right. Uh, but there's an ancient Roman legal doctrine uh, that says that if you own surface land, then you own a column of air uh, above it, a column of the atmosphere unto the heavens. And you also own a cone of, uh, uh, of material down to the core of the earth. And so under that ancient Roman doctrine, if somebody puts something in the air uh, that is over your land, then they've invaded your property, right? They've, they've committed a trespass or a nuisance uh, against you. So many uh, modern examples of air pollution 
would fit in that category of being a trespass or a nuisance or a public nuisance uh, against neighboring landowners. So I can't move into your neighborhood and put up a big smokestack and start belching out smoke and ash and toxic substances uh, without violating your property rights. I'm constrained by this legal and institutional and ethical environment of property rights so that anything goes is simply not consistent with that framework. So, so the, the free marketeers of today, or let's say the modern age, are certainly not the first people to ever think about, hey, like a lot of this stuff can be solved by respecting people's property. In a sense, free market environmentalism is a rediscovery of ideas that hmm. were uh, influential uh, in uh, uh, when classical liberalism was in its heyday. I think these are not radical ideas from a classical liberal point of view, but I think that uh, in some respects, the progressive movement in moving us away from classical liberalism has uh, has uh, led to a situation where, where many people don't really kind of understand the principles uh, of classical liberalism and its foundation in property rights theory. That's actually an, an excellent place to bring us because that was going to be my, my follow-up question. I, I wanted you to sort of illustrate, okay, we, we talked about what uh, free market environmentalism is and what the idea of respecting people's property rights and what they can do with it is. So when you look around today, uh, you you don't see that as what's actually happening. Some people may. They may say, oh, the reason why we have all these corporate polluters and some environmental mm-hmm. crises is, let's say, again, like a polluted river or uh, or a smokestacks going and, and uh, belching out smoke and landing on people's cars at night and things like that. You don't look at that and say, that's a market failure. You look at that and say, there's other things going on there. So maybe you can get into that. What's going on if not free markets and respecting private property rights? Well, maybe I could use a couple of historical examples from uh, the Canadian context. Um, uh, a number of years ago, the, the uh, area around Sudbury, Ontario, was uh, infamous for a lack of vegetation. Uh, uh, there's a story that I've heard, I don't know whether it's true or not, but that when NASA wanted to test the moon rover that they were going to use uh, on the moon landings, that they, they took it to Sudbury because they wanted a landscape that, uh, that uh, didn't have vegetation, which is what the moon is like. <laughs> so I don't know whether they did that or not. But, but anyway, Sudbury had this, this uh, reputation for uh, uh, not having much uh, vegetation, uh, not, trees and plants and so forth had difficulty surviving with the high sulfur content of emissions that were coming out of the smelting operations. And, and uh, a lot of uh, people look at that and say, well, that's a market failure. That's corporate greed. That's, uh, that's why we need regulations and policies. But if you look back at the history of that in the early years of the 20th century, uh, there were a number of farmers and landowners who were downstream, uh, downwind from the smelters in Sudbury who, who uh, went to the courts. Uh, and said, hold on, uh, our property rights are being violated under customary common law, under the, uh, a, a classical liberal understanding of property rights. Somebody is putting something in the air, and it's killing our trees, and it's killing our crops, and, and we uh, either want an injunction or we want compensation for the damages that we have uh, incurred, mm-hmm. uh, which is the, uh, the normal course of events that you would expect when somebody commits uh, a trespass uh, or a nuisance of that type. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the courts of the day uh, in hearing these cases said, well, it's probably true that these smelting operations uh, did cause harm, uh, but for a number of reasons, uh, we're not going to give you uh, compensation for damages. We're not going to grant you an injunction. And the number of reasons were, well, one, uh, Canada was involved in fighting a war in Europe, and the minerals, the products of the smelting were needed for armaments to fight that war. So there was the war uh, uh, rationale. Uh, many people were employed in these uh, smelting operations, and it uh, might be a threat to their jobs if, uh, if we were to hold the smelters account- accountable for the damage downstream. They're downwind. Uh, and by the way, the smelters pay a lot of tax to municipal governments and provincial governments and the federal government. And so the tax revenue, uh, what happens if that goes away, these governments would have a problem. Therefore, the court decided uh, that these landowners' uh, rights would not be respected. Uh, and just in case a future court might change its mind, the provincial legislature uh, came along and passed a statute 
uh, in so, I think around 1921, and one of the one of the clauses in the statute said uh, specifically uh, smelters in the Sudbury area uh, cannot be held liable uh, for damages caused by their em- emissions. So is that a market failure? I don't think it's a market failure. I think it is a legal failure. I think it's a non-market failure. It's a political failure, but it was a political decision uh, based on uh, what turned out to be faulty economics. Subsequent research went back and looked at the profitability of the smelting operations and asked, uh, could the smelters have been held liable? Could they have paid compensation? Hmm. Could they have uh, undertaken steps to reduce their emissions to a lower level? And the answer to all those questions was yes, that, uh, that uh, protecting the property rights of the downwind uh, landowners and farmers was not going to bankrupt the smelters, that there were technologies and methods that they could have used, but they had no incentive to use them. Wow. Because they could put stuff into the atmosphere for free. And Alex, if you've got the opportunity to eat lunch for free or to pay for lunch, then uh, you're going to try and eat lunch for free. Right. Uh, and th- and that's exactly what happened. So, uh, and, and that's just one example, but it's multiplied many times over uh, as you look across Canada, as you look across uh, experiences in other countries. Uh, time and time again, what you find is that it's when property rights were not respected, when courts didn't uh, do what, uh, what they were created to do, um, when uh, governments decided for military or taxation or employment or voting and political reasons uh, to uh, override override the property rights of individuals. Um, historically, that's where what we now call pollution problems, you, you can trace pollution problems back to that origin in every case that I've examined. And I guess it's also interesting to note that even if someone today buys into the, I, I guess you can wrap it up by calling it the greater good argument that the courts had at that time, mm-hmm. when you actually look at the the numbers and someone actually studied, they said, well, even if you buy into that greater good argument, it still doesn't mm-hmm. apply. We're not bankrupting people by making them pay for any damages they're doing. Well, and, and in some cases it might. Right, uh, right. In other words, if somebody's uh, doing some production or consumption activity and it does create substantial harms uh, for uh, property owners next go next door or downstream or downwind, uh, then uh, it certainly is possible that if if that production or consumption activity were fully held accountable uh, for those uh, uh, those costs imposed on others, that it wouldn't be viable. That it wouldn't be attractive an attractive activity uh, anymore. Um, it just so happens that in the Sudbury case, that wasn't the situation. That that we now believe that. That those companies uh, could have been held accountable, they could have had an incentive to clean up their game, uh, but they simply uh, were absolved of any responsibility to do that. Underneath all this is there. There's this interesting distinction that, from from the free marketeers' perspective, they are supposed to be pro markets, not pro business in a sense. That is to say, mm-hmm. where that people yeah. you know that are living in a town, they're part of the market, and if it ends up being that this market's not going to tolerate, uh, you know, clouds of smoke going in the sky and landing on cars at night and peeling people's paint, then uh, then that's mm-hmm. if nobody can figure out a way to solve that, then they're not being efficient enough for that market. So I, I think you know it's interesting. It occurs to me that as we're talking about all this, it shouldn't go without saying, you know, you, you, it's not about being pro-business from the free market, it's about That's being right. pro-market. Yeah. And, and I think in many people's minds, though, and the reason, one of the reasons that they might see the phrase free market environmentalism as an oxymoron is that, that in many people's minds, free market means pro-business. Uh, and the situation that I've just described, it's, it's clearly free market environmentalism is not pro-business uh, and it's not anti-government uh, either. Uh, it's just that in that particular case, first the court, uh, then the legislature, uh, and uh, created a situation where businesses faced an incentive that said that it's like a signal that they sent to business. You don't have to worry about this. Right. You, you don't have to lie awake nights uh, thinking about what might happen if you're held liable for damages downwind. Right. Well, if I don't have to lie awake nights thinking about that, if I've got an incentive that says I don't have to care about that, then probably I'm going to tend to not care about that quite so much. Right. 
exactly. And it's, it's interesting in, in this case, as you pointed out really quickly there, that uh, in, in a funny way that this or the Sudbury example isn't free marketeers and proponents of, of markets and free market environmentalism saying, oh, the government should step out. In fact, what it's saying is in this case, what the courts and the structure should have done is actually step in and properly enforce people's property rights instead of going mm-hmm. off and making legislation and weird exceptions. And and often, you know, the judge's decision in that case, the legislature's decision in that case makes appeal to some concept of the greater good of the public interest uh, and, uh, and, and attempts to create mm-hmm. attention or pit, uh, what is called the private interest against the public interest. And if you frame it in those terms, well, who's going to be against the public interest, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> and if you have to sacrifice the private interest for the public interest, well, suck it up, buttercup. That's what you need to do. Right. Uh, but I think it's a false dichotomy. It's a false tension that in fact, it was not the public interest that was being served, certainly not in the long run in the Sudbury case. It was not the public interest that was being uh, served, and that serving the private interest, which uh, had the courts done that, then they would have also been serving the public interest. And before we get into a few more details I want to get into here, so I read some of the the notes and prep material that you sent me over so I could do some research on this topic. And and at the end of a section where you, you did some examples of what, uh, to illustrate, in fact, what wasn't market failure, but in fact, in, in a way, you know, free market failure in the sense that nobody enforced the rules of the free market properly. You said we can fix a lot of the problems like this that we see today by actually just rehabilitating tort law specifically. So uh, mm-hmm. maybe get into that a little bit more. I know we, we touched on it and that's really what we were talking about, but I'd like you to put a finer point on this section by talking about, okay, so if tort law is dead in a certain way, what's the use in like rehabilitating it for reasons like this, I suppose? Yeah, I, I think the, 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 the argument for rehabilitating a tort law is that f- for a long, long time, it had an excellent track record at environmental protection. It was not perfect uh, by any stretch of the imagination because you're dealing with human beings and human beings aren't perfect and courts don't always make good decisions. Juries don't always make good decisions. But over the process of time, the evolution of customary uh, common law uh, remedies is such that, that it tends to be a self-correcting uh, system. And then what happened, uh, largely through the influence of the progressive movement uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, is that the institution of property, for various reasons, came to be viewed with some degree of suspicion. Uh, certainly, the institution of property got in the way of many of the aspirations of the progressives. Uh, and uh, the, the progressives were all about progress, as the word uh, suggests. And so uh, you don't want to be the enemy of progress. Um, <laughs> right? A really a really good framing device for, from their perspective, of course. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And so, so if you can pit something, and this is this public interest, private interest thing again, if the private interest is in the way of progress, mm-hmm. then the public interest... Uh, should uh, should prevail. Well, looking back on it now, I think that was a mistake. Uh, I don't think that these uh, institutions of property protection uh, were a problem. They were, in fact, uh, they had a track record historically, uh, as I said, of doing a pretty good job of protecting uh, the quality of water, the quality of air, um, and uh, and uh, other property rights related uh, environmental situations. Um, and that it was the very uh, uh, acts of legislatures uh, that were uh, couched in terms of the public interest doctrine uh, that we now look back on and say, gee, you know, that had really bad effects uh, on environmental quality. Um, right. And, and so I think I'm appealing to this track record of customary common law prior to the dawning of the 20th century and saying that seems to have been a pretty good system. Uh, and it's not that it jumped, it was pushed. Right. Metaphorically. Uh, so let's stop pushing it. Let's allow it to do its job. And in some respects, we're in a better position for it to do its job today because we've got much better scientific and technical information. We've got much better instrumentation. We can detect things in water and air that uh, were not detectable 150 years ago. Uh, and so we should, as individual property owners, uh, be in a better position uh, to protect ourselves against contamination of air and contamination of water. But because these customary common law instruments, mechanisms have been weakened so much uh, that we can't use this technology 
uh, to our advantage to the extent that uh, that we might. And I suppose the moral of the story as well for the uh, public versus private interest story is that when anyone ever says it's in the public interest, look underneath that and see if there's a particular private interest benefiting as well, right? Like, for instance, the Sudbury smelters. Well, one of, one of my uh, favorite social scientists was Carl Menger, who was first, he was a lawyer, and then uh, he was one of the founders of, of uh, modern economics at the University of Vienna in the 1870s. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book about... Um, sort of the theory of social science or what the function, what the purpose of social science should be. And one of the things that he pointed out is that whenever you're dealing with what he called positive legislation, which is the uh, what we would call uh, statutes uh, today, he said you should, all, you should look at what the stated goal is, but then you should look behind that and see if there are any unstated goals. Today we might say, are there any ulterior motives right. that or might agendas. be associated with that? Is there a hidden agenda right. associated with it? And uh, and and the the responsibility of the social scientist is to do that analysis as well. And it's it's kind of sad in a way, I guess, too, because oftentimes the general public doesn't ask if there's an agenda. They're always asking, what is the agenda for many political actions. So we're already kind of there. So take it a step Mm -hmm. further. Um, We're we're almost about to hit the point we'll want to take a break here. But before we do, I want you to at a high level, because we're going to jump into this after we come back, explain why the rest of our conversation, or at least a lot of it, will uh, be discussing the difference between what old and new resource economics is. Okay, well, uh, this is a distinction that was made by Terry Anderson, who uh, is an economist, and he uh, founded a free market environmentalist think tank in Montana uh, a number of years ago. And he, it started with, uh, with him making this distinction between the new resource economics, which is uh, what he subsequently rebadged, rebranded as free market environmentalism, and the old resource economics, which could also be described as the economics of market failure. That environmental problems come about because of market failures, and the job of government is to fix market failures. Um, free market environmentalism or the new resource economics says the story's a little more complicated than that. And I think that's an excellent place to take a break. So we'll do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm talking with Glenn Fox. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Danny Leroy, Darcy Giroux, and Elizabeth Aragona. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm here with Glenn Fox. Glenn, at the break, we were talking about one of the stories that you'd like to recount before I jump into all the questions I had for you in the second half here. So, so let's tie it in with everything we've been talking about so far. Why don't you why don't you kick our second half off here with what you were telling me at the break? Well, there's a story that I'd like to tell about how I got acquainted with the ideas of free market environmentalism in the first place. Uh, it, it was sort of an accidental discovery, I suppose. So I was in Europe uh, visiting some European universities, and we had a day where we were doing sightseeing in the Black Forest. And so we stopped actually to get a drink uh, in the middle of a Sunday afternoon, and we're walking, so we parked the van that we had uh, had rented and walked across a footbridge into a town where there was an establishment that uh, we thought might serve us a beverage. And as I was crossing this footbridge, I looked down, and this was an, an old city, Uh, probably it had been a walled city and a river had been diverted uh, around sort of a moat, I guess, uh, outside the the wall of the city. So I'm walking across this footbridge and I look down uh, and I'm absolutely astonished to see this group of brown trout uh, lazily swimming in the river uh, uh, below. And and just to, to set the picture visually, across the bridge is this walled town. It had been a human settlement for probably a thousand years. On the other side of the footbridge is a, is a motorway, an express roadway. And there's uh, scores of people walking back and forth across the footbridge with me. I'm the only one looking in the river, apparently. So I look down and I'm just transfixed by, by uh, this site because I've been looking in rivers in Ontario since I was four or five years old. I'd never seen uh, such a display of uh, magnificent fish as, as I had seen. So I got chatting with some of the German hosts who were taking us on this sightseeing tour. 
and they were sort of surprised that I was surprised. They thought this was a this was an unremarkable scene for them. And I said, well, uh, I've never seen this in Canada. If this were to happen in Ontario, there would be people lining the banks of this river with fishing rods, and in very short order, the fish would be gone. And the Germans looked at me like I'd said something rude, like <laughs> I'd said something that was just uh, really deviant. They said, uh, and, and by the way, none of them were anglers. Uh, none of them were from this area. But they said, well, that's unthinkable. The situation that you've described is unthinkable. We just can't imagine it. Because we all know that those fish are owned by somebody. And I, I was startled at this. And they said, we don't know who owns them. But every German would know as a result of our history and our culture uh, that those fish would be owned by somebody. And we would have to get the permission of the owner of the fish in order to fish for them. And it would be as unthinkable for someone to just uh, arbitrarily walk down to the bank of the river and start to catch fish as it would be in Canada for somebody to drive a truck into the middle of a farmer's field and start loading up cows without the farmer's permission. Right. And I thought, well, how can that be? That is, that was, struck me as about the, the strangest thing that I've ever seen in my academic career. How could it be uh, that, uh, that fish could live such a different life in Germany uh, than they live in Canada? And the irony is that we have brown trout in Ontario, and the brown trout that we have in Ontario are descendants of brown trout from Germany. Oh, okay. Brown trout, they're not a native species right. to, to Canada. So they were introduced, but they don't live nearly as good a life uh, in Canada because we don't have this ownership structure. Uh, and the ownership structure promotes stewardship. Right. So the brown trout were more abundant uh, uh, in, uh, in, in Germany, which is a highly developed industrialized economy and has been for a long, long time. We have, we have a better situation with respect to brown trout than we do in Ontario. And that got me curious. I said, well, how can that be? And, and, and I had always believed up until that point that, that it was futile to think about anybody having a property right in what is called on this side of the Atlantic, a fugitive resource. There's no fences in the river. The fish can swim around. They, they're not contained to one area. In Germany, for a long, long time, it's a well-established principle and practice that these brown trout were owned by somebody. And they had effective exclusion of people uh, who didn't own the brown trout. Right. And, and just, just to clarify, so like, I guess at that time, were you on like a quote public bridge and you were looking down this river? Is it just because there's property around? That's the way the law works. It, it, the assumption is that these people own their waterfront, et cetera. Like how does the actual ownership work, work in that case? Or is it just the cultural assumption that somebody must own these fish? I think it's part of history. I think it's part of culture. It's part of law. So this was a, this was a public walkway. So, so there's, as I said, there's an expressway, there's like a four lane busy roadway on one side of the river. There was a parking lot, so we pulled into the parking lot, and then we walked across this public footbridge, which is like a public footbridge anywhere in Canada, uh, and we were going to go into this town uh, to, uh, to find a pub. Um, and, uh, and so there was all kinds of access, mm. and people could have walked down to uh, the banks of the river, should they so choose, uh, but everybody in the group of Germans that we were with understood uh, that uh, those fish had a particular legal and institutional status. Let, let's let's tie that back to the way we left off in the first half, which is this this dichotomy between old versus new resource economics. So this is Terry Anderson's distinction. The old resource economics can also be called the economics of market failure. Uh, the way that this works is there are certain categories going back to Pagu, uh, who was an economist in Britain uh, in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, there are certain uh, situations that, should they arise, uh, result in inefficient use of natural resources. And uh, inefficiency is the cardinal sin uh, in economics. So you don't want inefficiency uh, in practical terms. You end up with uh, excessive depletion of natural resources. Uh, you end up with air pollution, water pollution, and so forth. So there are certain categories of situations, and the leading ones when it comes to environmental problems are uh, problems of externalities, uh, problems of public goods, uh, and problems of, I'll call it, uh, excessive time preference. Mm. Uh, 
Um, and uh, and so the old resource economics would, uh, uh, when confronted with some sort of environmental problem, would say, well, does this fit into one of those three baskets? Is it an example of one of those three categories? Uh, and if it is, then what's the what's the remedy? Uh, and the, the, the most common uh, diagnostic category for environmental problems is the problem of externality. And so the solution to externalities uh, is a system of, of regulations or rules or laws, uh, or what Pigou called a system of taxes and bounties. Uh, you put taxes on something or you subsidize it. You subsidize it if there's not enough of it. You put tax on it if, if it's a, a negative externality. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and sort of end of story uh, that your job as an economist is uh, is done once you've done the diagnosis. And I say to my students, you know, it's too bad that you weren't born 30 years sooner than you were because this course would only be half as long as it is. Right. <laughs> right. We, we'd be done at the midterm because all you have to do is learn the categories of market failure, learn the remedies associated with market failures uh, and, uh, and, and match them up against environmental problems. And if you can do that, then you get an A. Well, there you go. Well, the, the new resource economics says, hold on, Buckwheat, it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, and, and this is informed uh, by situations like the Sudbury story that I said earlier, right? There's, there's no category in the old resource economics of non-market failure. So in a way, the old resources economics pretty much says a lot of the environmental problems we see are caused just because that's what markets do. Therefore, we have to apply a remedy to it. And if you that's right. dig a layer deeper, especially in reference to the conversation we had leading up to this, is that underneath all this, in many ways, you find there are non-market failures, as you were saying. It's not always a market failure. That's right. And so the, the, the corresponding term in non-market failure theory for externalities is something called derived externalities. Uh, it's also called legalized nuisance uh, in other places in the literature. So that's that's what happened in Sudbury. You had a legalized nuisance, so that there wasn't really any uh, biophysical or legal reason to say that the smelting didn't harm the trees. Right. I think the lawyers agreed, and I think the scientists agreed, and the farmers agreed, and probably the smelters agreed that the emissions from uh, from smelting did uh, damage the plants and uh, uh, and uh, property. Uh, downwind. Uh, so it was it was a nuisance, um, uh, but it was legalized uh, in the sense that the people initiating the nuisance weren't held accountable. They weren't held responsible. They weren't held liable uh, for the nuisance that they they created. Uh, and so now it's more complicated. So now you you look at a situation where you've got pollution of air or pollution of water. Uh, and in the old days, we used to just say, well, that's an externality. Let's have some regulations. Let's have uh, some taxes, uh, an, an emission tax on that. But now we have to say, well, hold on. Is there some way in which nuisance is legalized? Uh, have the courts or has the legislature stepped in and, and taken the legs out from underneath the traditional property rights protection? And the reason that that is important has to do with uh, – with uh, treatment. Uh, earlier, I said diagnostic categories of market failure and non-market failure. Uh, and you, the reason that you want to get the diagnosis right is because the treatment's going to be different depending on your diagnosis. So you see an air pollution problem, you see you detect a water pollution problem. You need to know whether that's caused by a market failure or a non-market failure because you're going to apply different remedies. Right. If it's a non-market failure, then the remedy might be, well, let's go back and change that statute. Let's repeal the statute. Right. And then allow allow customary common law remedies to operate the way that they used to. If I'm remembering correctly, somewhere in some of the research I was doing, you said another way to look at it is that, you know, on the one hand, we kind of have like a free market environmentalism. And on the other hand, we have like a political environmentalism. And it's in mm -hmm. that area of political environmentalism where some of the problems are actually caused rather than mm. fixed. Okay, so we talked a lot about externalities. One of the areas you spend some time discussing in some of the writings and research that I've been doing on what you like to lecture about is also like you get into public goods a bit. And I think some people are a little mm. confused on exactly what a, what a public good is and why and what the mm. old approach to a public good is and, th and things like that. So why don't we get into that? Let's define what a public good is. And again, let's do the difference between old versus new resource economics approach. Public good is a complicated phrase. Uh, it's often tied to the public interest. Uh, Sometimes for some people, to say something is a public good means that the government provided it for me w at no price to me. Right. Um, but when economists say public good, they actually have a fairly specific technical 
definition in line. And this goes back to Paul Samuelson, Nobel laureate uh, in economics. In the 1950s, he, he said that, uh, that we need to define a public good as having uh, two attributes. The first is it's non-rival. He, he said non-rival. I like to say non-rival in consumption because I don't think that anything can be non-rival except if it's a consumption good. And to say something is non-rival means that you can consume, Alex, as much as you want, and I can consume as much as I want, and all of the listeners to this podcast, uh, uh, all six million of them, uh, can consume as much as they want, and there's no less of the thing left over to be consumed uh, than, than uh, if, if you and I and uh, the six million listeners had uh, abstained from from consumption, so it's a bit of an unusual, a bit of an unusual uh, characteristic. Uh, if if you think about its its implications, now Samuelson said that it just had to be non-rival, and the implication is that that it could be a good which is used by a business to produce some other good for consumers. And I don't think that anything can ever be non-rival in that context because businesses compete with one another, so they're always rival. And even a car company competes with a computer company because you've only got so much money and you're going to spend so much on cars and so much on computers. And so there's always rivalry if it's a good or an input that's used by a business. So I think it's got to be a consumer good. So that's the first, the first characteristic. The second characteristic, uh, and this is stated in a couple of different ways, and sometimes economists are not very self-aware of the problems of this ambiguity. Sometimes economists will say that exclusion of non-contributors is impossible. That is, if you didn't contribute to the provision of the public good, then there's nothing that can be done to keep you from consuming it. Right. Other times economists say, well, it's not that it's impossible, it's that it's costly to exclude non-contributors. Uh, and impossible is different from costly. Costly could depend on how hard you want to work at it. It could depend on technology. In the German brown trout case, it depended on culture, right? Right. Uh, all the people walking across that bridge excluded themselves from fishing for brown trout because their culture told them that would be an immoral thing to do. Right. Uh, and that's different from impossible uh, to, uh, to exclude. So, so that's kind of the theory, and then economists kind of wave their hands a little bit and, and, and give some examples, because they say, well, that's pretty abstract, uh, those characteristics. Uh, what are some real-world situations? And, and one of the most common ones is uh, a lighthouse, hmm. you know, an aid to maritime navigation. So you've got this tower, typically, uh, with a light on top, and the light shines at night, and that helps mariners, it helps uh, boaters and, uh, and ship captains uh, avoid uh, running aground or it helps them get into harbor safely. And so the, the, text, the standard textbooks argued that, well, that's an example of a non-rival service and it's not excludable. So you put up the tower, you shine the light, and then any ship that's going by, any boat that goes by, they can benefit from that. They can look, oh, there's the light over there. Uh, so don't go over there because uh, there's a shoal or there's a big rock and we don't want to sink the sink the ship. Uh, and you can't exclude anybody because the ship can just go by in the night and and you you know it's not like you're gonna row out and say, excuse me, captain, right. uh, put some money in the hat here because you just benefited from from uh, my lighthouse. Uh, so that was the kind of the standard textbook definition or treatment that said, okay, here's what I felt good is, and here's an example. Then along came Ronald Coase, uh, who actually took the time to study the economic history of the lighthouse industry. And what he found is that the lighthouse industry did not emerge in the way that economic theory said it was supposed to emerge. Mm. Uh, he said that uh, lighthouses emerged in Britain as an industry, and they were uh, for-profit enterprises constructed by private investors which the economic theory of public good says that's impossible, can't work. Uh, but Coase uncovered a lot of documentation that said that these were profit-making ventures. Uh, and so you might ask, well, what's the business model? How did that work? Uh, and the way it worked was by tying 
harbor services, mooring services to uh, lighthouses. Okay. So you didn't just build a lighthouse arbitrarily out in the middle of nowhere with no expectation of return. You would work out some deal with the harbor master. So maybe you would invest in a pier in the harbor and a lighthouse at the headland. And then when the ships came in and tied up, they said, well, you came in here from such and such a direction. You went past this lighthouse. You got here safely because of that. So part of your harbor mooring fee covers the cost of the lighthouse, which was also necessary for your safe passage uh, into the harbor. Uh, and so uh, Coase was quite critical of economists, including Pigou, uh, including others, who simply pulled the lighthouse as an example of a public good out of thin air and uh, uh, without understanding the economic history uh, of the example, which uh, actually contradicts uh, the predictions of, uh, of the theory. Uh, it, it turns out that there aren't a lot of things that, if, you, if you're strict about the definition of public goods, it's actually difficult to come up with things that fit the definition. Uh, I think a more useful theory uh, than public goods theory is something called club goods theory. And a club good uh, is a situation where a group of people pool their resources, uh, and so it's club with a small c, but clubs with a capital C do this. So they pool their resources uh, to create an organization, to create a situation that the members of the club can then enjoy. Uh, and many uh, uh, environmental goods, so for example, the, the, the brown trout in Germany, they could very well have been a club good. Uh, so it could be an association of anglers, uh, a fishing club uh, could own those fish. And then you have to be a member of the club in order to fish uh, for those fish. And if you're a member of the club, there are rules associated with the club. So you can't take a stick of dynamite, throw it off the bridge and, and blast, take all the fish out of the water at once. That would violate the club rules. So, so you're subject to the governance of the club. Uh, and I think many natural resources, many environmental situations would better be described as club goods rather than public goods, especially given the fact that it's, uh, it's pretty difficult to think of examples of situations that, in fact, comply with both aspects of Samuelson's definition of a, of a public good. So in illustrating the difference between the old versus new resource economics or political environmentalism versus uh, free market environmentalism, I guess is, is the main difference there that the political environmentalism or the old resource economics pretty much just, as you were saying before, the assumption is, well, this public good problem does exist, so here's what we got to do to remedy it. Whereas in on the flip side, where we have the new resource economics approach, uh, as you said, they, they tend to look at things a little differently or discover that things aren't necessarily public goods in that way. Is that really the distinction there? Yeah, I think there's a close relationship between uh, political environmentalism and uh, the old resource economics or market failure uh, economics uh, that views the origin of the problem uh, as arising in the market process and the, the necessary corrective function lies with the government. Uh, the political process has to clean up the mess, has to fix these uh, market uh, failures. The new resource economics or free market environmentalism uh, says that, uh, that there are non-market failures, uh, that many environmental problems are not caused, they don't originate in the market process at all, they don't originate in the price system, uh, they originate in the political process. Uh, and the corrective measures are, uh, are, are going to be different uh, because the origin of the problem uh, is uh, is different. As our time does wind down here, we're on the we're on that last sort of stretch. I, I want to pivot over to to climate change. I think that kind of wraps everything up together. So for for this for this this situation, we're going to assume that climate change is what a lot of people say it is, which is that it there there is a threat. Uh, this is a, a serious situation, and uh, you know a lot of life can change as we know it unless something is done. So it, it's easy to understand how free market environmentalism in our discussion here answers immediate pollution and direct private property concerns. But but let's talk about free market environmentalism in the context of climate change. How can we apply everything we're talking about to answering someone that would come to you and say, Glenn, well, what about this climate change? That can't work with your theories. I want to make a, a, a a more a more general point before I get to that particular topic, and that is that that sometimes people think of free market environmentalism as some sort of um, completed taxonomy, as it's a body of thinking which is which is all fleshed out uh, and uh, 
and, and everything is covered. And I think that that's, that's a misunderstanding of what free market environmentalism is. I like to view it more as a dynamic process. Mm. It's a perspective. It's a way to think about problems. And of course, problems are emerging uh, all the time. And so one of the frontier areas of free market environmentalism uh, is climate change. Uh, and there have been a number of, I think, important contributions uh, going back to Murray Rothbard's essay on law, property rights, and air pollution. Uh, he wasn't thinking about climate change in 1982 when he wrote that essay, but he set up the framework that free market environmentalists use now uh, to try and tackle the problem. So, so if we're consistent to the property rights roots, if we're consistent to the trespass and nuisance uh, paradigm, then uh, what is climate change? Well, climate change is you putting a substance into the atmosphere uh, which uh, harms me, or more particularly harms future generations. Following the framework, uh, climate change becomes uh, a, a problem of trespass or nuisance. So somebody consuming fossil fuels puts carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, that changes the dynamics of uh, current and future climate. Uh, and, uh, and the person committing that trespass or committing that nuisance should be held liable. So that's a difficult problem. There are a lot of practical things to be overcome uh, from that simply because uh, uh, there are uh, the, the limitations of jurisdiction. Because this is a global problem. Right. So you put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere in Ottawa, Ontario. Well, it doesn't stay in Ottawa, Ontario, right? It spreads throughout the entire atmosphere of the entire planet. Uh, if what you did affected people in Ontario, like the Sudbury case, then there is a jurisdiction which covers that. Uh, there, isn't a, there isn't a jurisdiction that covers uh, the global uh, commons. And there are some people, uh, uh, Jonathan Adler uh, is a legal theorist who's been working on this, Edward Dolan, uh, a number of people have, uh, have started to sketch out what that would look like. Uh, um, and uh, according to recent counts, there actually are over 1,300 uh, climate change litigation initiatives going on in the world right now. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying that all of those are guided by or motivated by the framework of free market environmentalism, but they are uh, an expression of, of, um, of that approach, right. uh, whether it's conscious and deliberate uh, or not. Um, but it's difficult. Uh, but I guess my uh, comeback to that uh, is the question, well, compared to what? Right. Um, because if we look at at the track record of uh, the alternative approaches to try and deal with tr climate change, it's not like that's a brilliant success. Mm. How many times has the government of Canada, in the political environmentalist model, set targets for greenhouse gas emission reduction for Canada and failed to meet those targets, regardless of government of the day, regardless of party in power? Well, mm -hmm. we, many times, the answer is many times and always, we failed to uh, reach the targets. Um, so I think this is a difficult problem. I think it's one of the frontiers of free market environmentalism. It's not a problem that's being addressed very effectively in any other way um, because it's a global commons uh, and, uh, and even political environmentalism is struggling uh, to try and come to, to terms with it. Right. I, I, that's a really good point too, right? Is that I don't think there's anybody out there that's a proponent of political environmentalism saying, let's just make sure we keep doing what we're doing because it's working great. <laughs> that's that's not the, the situation mm -hmm. on that side of the discussion either. So that, that's mm -hmm. a really good point too, as compared to what, right? Yeah. And I think I think that's that's why the 1300 cases around the world have, have been initiated. Uh, right. It's out of frustration with the, the alternative. Mm -hmm. that it's not working very well. And I think there's a lot of technological progress that's happening now and over the past decade that although it may not have started as an answer to problems of climate in a broader sense, it's, it's certainly answered it. I mean, um, some some have with like a vision from an entrepreneur like Elon Musk and electric cars, uh, but, but nevertheless, now we see the market moving towards 
for a variety of reasons, which we would need a whole episode to cover, but for a variety of reasons, there's a lot of things in the market moving more towards um, in environmentally friendly in the climate change sense mm-hmm. solutions and technology. And it's not all because the government said you have to do that tomorrow. Not, not by mm-hmm. any means. The other angle of sort of, and this could apply to climate change or another environmental disaster or anything like that is one, as I was doing research for this, one objection that came up to sort of the more free market approach was the idea of, of timeliness. The idea is that, well, sometimes we, we need an authority to act. We need a political authority mm-hmm. to do something uh, in a time of, of natural, uh, like a climate change issue or, or any sort of an environmental issue. Um, so, so, so what's your, what's your answer to that? Is it that if the markets were allowed to do their thing, as a matter of fact, they would be as efficient or, or faster than they could be at solving certain problems? Is it that in some cases there does need to be some sort of central authority or government does have a role? Where, where do you kind of navigate that objection that, well, maybe the market doesn't work fast enough? Sort of as an aside, I guess there's a related uh, literature or body of thinking that's very closely aligned with free market environmentalism uh, called environmental entrepreneurship. Mm. Uh, and that's a particular type of entrepreneurship, uh, which is exercised in the context of an experience of an environmental problem. And then how do you bring the skills of entrepreneurial alertness and action to bear on solving uh, problems? Is that faster or slower than a regulatory response? Hmm. I think that's, in some sense, that's, a, that's, um, uh, that's an empirical question. It might be faster in some circumstances. It might be slower uh, in other uh, circumstances. Um, I guess as I look at the uh, at the track record of political environmentalism, um, I would say that sometimes it's it's quick to make pronouncements. It's not so quick to make progress, and I think that's that's an important distinction to make. Hmm. Uh, that is, uh, it's not enough to say we are committed to taking action. You right. can do that very quickly. Co- Congress can pass a motion. That's right. But does that actually translate into action? And is that action effective at resolving the problem? And if we look at the time scale on those terms and then compare political environmentalism against on environmental entrepreneurship, I, I, we're at least looking at a realistic time scale. Yeah. And, and, and again, as I was saying before, I think it's important to note that uh, people that are proponents of political environmentalism, political action, their their main problem right now is that politicians and politics isn't working fast enough to solve these problems. That's, That's what right. they're saying. They're not saying well, right. everything's great. Yeah. And I, I think what free market environmentalism could do potentially uh, is is to change the channel. Right. Uh, because right now with political environmentalism, it's, 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 I think, not satisfying most people's expectations and dreams. Uh, and yet it's kind of perceived to be the only game in town. Right. And so, well, you just have to get, you have to throw out the current bunch of bums uh, that are governing the country and put in a new bunch of bums and they'll do a better job. And we've tried that uh, several times. Uh, maybe there's something about the system and it doesn't matter what bunch of bums you've got uh, controlling the system that, that matters. Uh, so, so to me, free market environmentalism creates an option. Uh, it's something to consider. It's something to think about, particularly if you're not satisfied with the status quo, which I don't think we should be. I'm certainly not satisfied with the status quo. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's a really important point. I mean, when I talk to some people about this issue too, um, and again, I try not to flat out state my, my biases or what I agree or disagree with on the podcast, but for this case, in this case, I am pretty much, I will say for the sake of this point, but to bring up, um, pretty much aligned with everything you're saying here today. And, and the fact is that when I talk to someone about this subject and they say, well, you know, you're, if they misunderstand, of course, they're coming from the perspective, well, if you're a free market guy, like, do you think you should be able to take a corporation to court because they're polluting? Like, well, well, absolutely. And they go, hold on, yeah. wait, a, wait a minute, hold on, wait, wait a minute. That's what are you talking about? Government action? There's a bit of confusion. And as you said, yeah. as our discussion sort of illustrates, there's that there's a lot of thing, nuance to this topic. There is a difference between, you know, being pro business versus pro market and pro property. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a very interesting conversation we had today about, like you said, there's there's a there's a way to ch- sort of change the channel where we're sort of talking about a, a an entirely different discussion here, not not what people think of as, as that free market perception. So, so our time has wound down here. Uh, we've talked about a lot, Glenn, and we always like to end the episode by bringing it full circle if we can, trying to put a finer point on it, and specifically should say the guest is there to put a finer point on it. So let me ask, ultimately, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether or not free market environmentalism is an oxymoron? How can we wrap everything up? Well, as I said at the beginning, the short answer is that the free market uh, is not the enemy. 
uh, of, uh, of environmental protection. Uh, historically, it has been the friend. Property rights have been the friend uh, of the environment. Uh, but uh, something has interfered. And I think it's, it's incumbent on us to understand, well, what is it that's interfered? What changed? Uh, and does, it, does that have to be a permanent condition? Or can we somehow rehabilitate the processes and the mechanisms and the traditions uh, that have served the environment well in the past? Uh, but that have been prevented from doing so, particularly in the 20th century. I think we're largely talking about a 20th century uh, phenomenon uh, uh, here when it comes to uh, the rehabilitation of, of tort law, of customary common law, uh, as a means of protecting property and a means of protecting environmental quality. Glenn Fox, thank you so much for joining me here today on The Curious Task. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.